At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 408th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. Today on our podcast, we have someone who prefers the taste of fresh pressed oil. We're talking with Ron Mantini about homemade olive oil. Ron was born and raised in Lorraine, Ohio, 30 miles west of Cleveland on the shores of Lake Erie. He moved to Chandler, Arizona in 2000 after graduating from Ohio State University to work for Intel Corporation. With several olive trees in his backyard, Ron decided to experiment and taught himself how to make his own olive oil from scratch. Welcome to the show today, Ron. Are you ready to rock olive oil? I am ready. Let's go. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, I I moved out to Phoenix uh, for work after college. And uh, when I bought the current house I live in in 2004, lo and behold, I inherited three very large olive trees. I do have an Italian background. My father is 100% Italian, so I'm half Italian. I'm also Polish and Slovak from my mom's side. But I do like Italian food. Uh-huh. I've always made you know, homemade pasta and homemade sauces. And you know, the idea of being able to make olive oil intrigued me immediately. And if you drive around Phoenix and, and know what an olive tree looks like, they're everywhere. Oh, yes. And, in my neighborhood, especially, there's I have an older neighborhood. Homes are built in the 70s, so there's a lot of very tall ones, and my neighbors had them. So I started asking around, what do you guys do with all these olives? Because, I mean, they are loaded, you know, much like other fruit trees. Some years very heavy, other uh-huh. years less, depending on how you prune them. I'll bet they looked at you funny, right? Yeah, I mean, they really, no, no one does anything with them that I could find, mm-hmm. and they typically just make a mess. They fall, the birds eat them, you end up with some... Uh, bird <laughs> droppings in different colors, depending on how ripe the olives are. So it's a big mess and, and no one really did anything. So I started 
researching and I really couldn't find anyone that tried to make olive oil out of them. A lot of people, you know, there are some examples of you can cure your own olives and, and jar them like you'd find in a store. Mm-hmm. That's also one of the first things everyone does. You've seen an olive tree and you pick an olive and you bite into it and it tastes terrible. You have to right. brine them and cure them if you want them to get to the edible stage. So that's where my journey began on, you know, digging in. What can I do with these? I'd say a few years later, I, I met you, Greg. I was actually out at the urban farm. I had a, I'd taken a different job at Intel where I had what we'd call like a fireman schedule. I had a shift job where I was working 12-hour days, and that led to, you know, you only work three days one week for the next. So I had a lot of free time, and that's really when I got into gardening. Um, I read a big interview from Bill Mollison, uh-huh. I know you're familiar with. Oh, yes. turned me on to what permaculture was. So I, I did a quick Google on Phoenix permaculture, and that's how I found you. So out to the urban farm I went and I learned about having fruit trees and and I started growing tomatoes at that time and composting. So I've got three big, you know, compost bins in my backyard that I got from the city of Chandler. They'll give you those for free. Anyone nice. who's listening to Chandler, you know, if you just call them up, they take the old garbage cans and cut them in half and you can use those. You know, I started getting into that kind of stuff. I learned how to bake bread. I learned how to make, I mentioned homemade pasta. Wow. Growing tomatoes. And I had this, I guess the initial thing I wanted to do was I had been growing tomatoes a few years. And I grew onions and I grew garlic. I'm like, wouldn't it be neat if I made like a batch of homemade sauce with stuff totally from my yard and the missing ingredient was that, olive oil? Yeah, that's always a cool thought. Yeah. And, and that's the where I've struggled in the past is I can do most everything except the oils. So go. Right. At this point, I have to give some uh, tip of the hat to the Queen Creek Olive Mill. It started off as a you know a hobby for the guy, Mr. Ray, that 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 founded it just, I think he wanted to just also Italian wanted to make olive oil and it just took off. Some of the local chefs started, you know, tasting their oils and uh, couldn't get enough of it. And every year they've gotten bigger and better. You know, it used to just be buy your oil. Now you can have pizza and gelato and coffee and they have concerts and it's fantastic. So anyway, if you go back um, at this point, 10, 12 years ago, somewhere on the internet, I found that you could bring them olives and they would press them and give you half of the output for free. So it's really a great thing they do mm-hmm. um, community pressing they do ask that you bring quite a bit of olives so this is where we can kind of get into maybe why olive oil is expensive and whatnot it takes a lot of olives to make olive oil so it takes a lot of olives to make olive oil yeah to give you a couple rough ideas i think back then they would tell you don't really bring them to us unless you have 125 pounds so that's usually five four or five five gallon buckets filled with olives you know that would usually make around a gallon and then they would give you half of that I did that one year. I rounded up a bunch. It's a lot of work to pick that many olives, by the way, too, if you don't have. Right. Uh, you know, so, you know, out at, out at the uh, olive mill there, they're doing this specifically to make olive oil. So they prune the trees to keep them a certain height and they have different methods that are better than what I have. You know, in my yard, the olive trees were mostly for shade. So in, in most of the neighborhoods, that's what they've done. You know, olive trees need very little water. So around Phoenix, they're huge. So to get to those olives that are way up in the tree, not so easy. And that's kind of the difficult part for me is gathering them. So anyway, yeah. I took them. Hold on. Let me, let me, let me stop you. So okay. 120 pounds of olives is going to make a gallon of oil. You got it. Yep. And each olive is about two grams, half yeah, an I ounce. I, I don't think I've weighed them at the at that <laughs> level, but a five gallon bucket, just picture if you have a pool, anyone that buys a five-gallon bucket of chlorine tabs. If you fill that with olives, yeah. that's about 25 to 30 pounds, depending on, you know, how wow. type of olive So, yeah, that, that's that's a, an idea as to why, like, olive oil is not cheap. Yeah. So, anyway, they, you know, this is, this is where I discovered what fresh olive oil tastes like. Now, I didn't have any idea. I just wanted to make olive oil out of my olives. And so I, I brought them, you know, my first haul. And a couple weeks later, they called me back to pick up my 
my gallon or half gallon, whatever it was. I think maybe I brought them enough to get two gallons out of it. Mm-hmm. And they give it to me, and I'm, I was shocked. So it's it's bright green, and, I, and I'm looking at this clear one gallon tube. I'm like, what is this? It didn't look, you know, in a in a grocery store, your olive oil is typically like golden hued mm-hmm. um, with some clarity. This was bright green; you couldn't see through it. And I tasted it, and initially I was like, whoa, this is not olive oil. <laughs> Um, so I, I guess the first reaction when you first taste fresh olive oil is a little bit of shock. And then I was instantly addicted. It went from, what is this to, I can't get enough of it. It's very strong. It's very peppery. Uh People describe it as grassy and to understand olive oil, um, it's the opposite of wine as it ages, it loses its flavor. So it basically, when it comes out of the shoot day one, it's got the most flavor it's going to have. And every day you lose a little bit. And that is why. If you go shopping in the grocery store and it's, you know, if you don't know anything about olive oil and you would see imported from Italy, imported from Spain, Greece, whatever, you would think, oh, that must be really good. Well, the the reality is that olive oil is probably quite old by the time it gets to a shelf in a grocery store in the valley. And, you know, try to seek out if I could recommend something to our listeners here. If you can find a local oil, um, California has quite a few. I've mentioned Queen Creek if you're in Phoenix and they ship everywhere. You're going to get a much better product if you get something more local. Anyway, that was my first taste of fresh olive oil and I couldn't get enough of it. And it's, and, it, it is, it's bright. I'm looking at a picture of it right here. It is bright green. Yeah. And that is, um, the Italians call that Olio Nuovo, which means new oil. And there's uh-huh. festivals I've read about in Italy when you have that first pressing, you know, they always save, you know, they save a lot of the oil for the whole year, but there will be like a festival or a party to celebrate the new oil and really, you know, enjoy that fresh flavor when it first comes out. And that got me hooked on it. So you know, I, I did that for a few years where I would bring them my olives. But a couple, you know, I, I started getting greedy. I said, I don't want to give, you know, even though they were doing this for free and it's a wonderful program and they're, you know, the quality of what they do with their machinery is, is impossible to beat. Yeah. I said, you know, maybe I could keep the whole batch myself if I can figure out how to do this at home. That was a quite a challenge. It took several years to come up with anything that worked, but uh, I'd be happy to share some of those yeah, details. Yeah. So there's, is there three steps to it? Yes. And this was the challenge at home. So in order to make olive oil, you don't just squish olives and get oil. There's three phases as you mentioned. You need to – and this, this first step was the most challenging for me. You have to crush the olives. Mm. And really what what, I, what made me think I could do this is this has been going on for thousands of years, right? There's You can find references to you know olive oil being made in Spain and Italy and wherever. 6,000 BC, I think you can you – know, they they've been doing this forever and it used to just be done with – large stones that they would uh, turn over the olives and, you know, maybe a mule or a donkey was pulling it in a circle. And mm-hmm. so you've seen those pictures. You're like, all right, with, with modern stuff, I should be able to, to tackle this. So, of course, you know, I was all over the internet looking and there are some companies that sell homemade mills, but they're very expensive. If you want to buy like a hobbyist mill, I, was, I saw them as much as $5,000. And I think right. that was more than the, the, I paid for the car I was driving at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like, there's got to be another way to do this. So how can I you know, squash these olives? That's step one. If you can get that accomplished, step two is you have to do a process which called it's called malaxation, and it's really mixing the olives because um, you get a you get a mash after you squash them. The malaxation process basically allows like the tiny droplets of oil to uh, adhere to each other, and you get bigger pools of oil. Ah. And if you don't do this step, you get nothing. Like you can't skip it. So you do have to malax the olives. I do it for typically 45 minutes. I mean, some of these commercial operations may be different, big bins, but you have to do that step. So what is that? So Liz, before we before we travel on, the first step is getting them crushed. How are you getting them crushed? So I, for many years, couldn't solve this. I didn't have a good way. So my first effort, and I did make olive oil, was I stuck, I filled my food processor with olives I picked, and I, you know, whirred them around and beat them up as bad as I could. Uh-huh. And I did, you know, I did the malaxation stage just in a KitchenAid mixer. And then I stuck 
the the mash into a, a cheesecloth and put it in like if you've made pasta with a stainless steel pot that has a calendar yep. you can insert calendar you can insert inside of it i stuck it in there and i just put some weights on it and let it sit for 20 minutes and and i did get some oil out of that so i'm like all right we can do this but the amount that filled up a you know a food processor is tiny the yield right. is tiny so i had to figure out how can i do this on a bigger stage and that wasn't like a great process that would have destroyed the food processor processor blade in short order because of the pits right and so i started experimenting like you know can i I even at one, I mean, this is crazy. You're going to laugh, but I was just trying to see what could, you know, is there some machinery out there? I was looking into like industrial equipment. What can break these up? So I was looking at attachments you could put on a weed eater. Uh, oh, interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah. I mean, I bought a, I bought a 55 gallon food grade bucket from a restaurant that probably had soda or something in it. And I put a bunch of olives in there and I was trying to just find some way to, you know, to crush a bunch of olives. Now the big mills, they have something called a hammer mill that does this very efficiently. It's very expensive. Oh, yes. Uh, the old ways were with the, the giant stones. That didn't seem very realistic to get a giant stone wheel in my backyard. So this, you know, eventually, and I can't remember what year this was. It was probably three or four years into trying this. I found someone in Australia, and I think another person in New Zealand, you know, olive trees grow out there, and they were using a garbage disposal. And this was like the light bulb moment for me. Oh. A garbage disposal does a perfect job of destroying these olives into a perfect mash. So what, where, where I'm at today is I have... And I'll kind of get back to how I, I thought I should be able to do this for a lot less than four or five thousand dollars with some of these hobbyist mills <laughs> we're doing. Uh -huh. I I just went and got a uh, countertop from Lowe's that someone had dinged up like a scratch and dent one that was pre-cut. Yep. I, I found a sink on Craigslist or something, a two-sided sink, which is perfect, and I'll explain that in a minute. And then I bought a one horsepower, a pretty heavy-duty garbage disposal off Amazon. And it's only used for that. It's not like it's right. my house. It's garbage disposal. Now you, it's only it's dedicated for the olive oil. Yep. So I pull I pull it out once a year and clean it and you know get back to work. So I set up a temporary sink, if you will, in my backyard about this time of year. And I have a I got a food grade five gallon bucket and I stick that under the garbage disposal. And on the two sided sink, the left side you you know because the olives are always dirty and you got to pick out some of the leaves and stems. So I clean them on one side, and then I put them through the garbage disposal on the other, and that solved the problem of how to crush these things. And it does it in pretty short order. That solves step one. Yes. The other two seemed less daunting and they were. So, uh, so now I have to stir them. And my solution here was that same five gallon food grade bucket that I bought at one of the local stores that sells grains around here. I, I got a, a mud mixer, which you'd call, you know, it's basically oh, yes. a giant stir paint or to stir drywall yep. compound. So I bought one of those and I kind of, uh, I put a lid on my five gallon bucket when the, when it's filled and I stick that in and I cut a hole in the top of the lid to put the, to put the mix, the mixer down into it, mm -hmm. just a small hole for the, the drilling piece or the, the mixing piece. And I, I set it up. It has like my, the one I have has a, a hold setting. So I kind of set up a couple concrete blocks on top of it and just let it spin in there for like 45 minutes. So that's my malaxation period. And at this point I have something I can press and at Harbor Freight, I found a shop press that I think people use to to work on ball bearings and brakes, oh, right. maybe. Uh -huh. You'll find a whole bunch of videos of this exact press on YouTube of people making apple cider and apple juice. Oh. And so I, that's how I, I came, up, came up with that idea. So I basically, at the end, I get back to that stainless steel colander I mentioned earlier. I do layers of my olive mash in cheesecloth, and I press it, and out comes the... The yield, it's still at this point, there's one last step that's much less, it's decanting basically because olive and, you know, oil and water don't mix. And olives are still about 80% water, I'd say, like the oil content in, oh, wow. in olives is like 10 to 20% oil. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the the flesh parts and the, and the pit and the rest is water. So when you, 
you press it, you're getting mostly water, but the oil rises right to the top. And I just basically use some some fat separators you might use for soup or whatever to uh, – that's, that's where wow. it sits. I pour out the water, and then I have that bright green oil that you saw in the picture I sent you. Wow. And we'll have that picture on our uh, on our show notes page for the show. That is quite the epic process. My my listeners know that I'm always looking for epic, and this is this is quite epic. Good job. Virtual yeah. high five to you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. So how long have you had – that process in place to where you actually can get a harvest i think i'm probably on four or five years of that now it you know it is really a labor of love this is not something i'm doing or have any vision of doing for commercial purposes i love the fresh oil it's a great hobby you know from start to finish i usually do it one one five gallon bucket at a time if i have a good yield i can Mm -hmm. get around two ounces of oil from that and that will still take me probably three or four hours of work not counting the olives to do that so it is a labor yeah, two ounces out of no, a 30, five. No, 30, 32 ounces. Oh, 32 ounces out yeah, of a five-gallon bucket. Yes. All right. Well, it's, yes. yes. There's a lot of variables. Certain, you know, I pick them all over. I live in Chandler, the South Tempe area. There's just, there's trees lining a lot of the streets that are, they're kind of behind people's backyards. And a lot of the, when I'm picking them, some of the people that live there come and say thank you. Because, again, they just fall usually and make right. a mess. And make a mess. So I get a lot of different varieties. One of the things, you know, when you're when you're doing this, you kind of want to mix. So that bright green oil you saw comes from a less ripened olive. If you let olives ripen, they turn to that dark purple or black state. And it's a, you want a balance because the more ripe, the more oil, the less ripe, the more flavor. So you look for, you know, I've seen people uh, say 40, 60, 50, 50. You want that balance where you get a nice yield out of your batch, but you want some of the green ones in there to give you that extra kick yeah. that is so special with the fresh oil. Wow. So certain oils are, um, or certain olives are oilier. I have a mission tree, and those are very oily. You get a very good yield out of those. I have a manzanilla tree. I get less out of those. And there's a bunch of other varieties that I'm not, i be honest with you, I don't know all the varieties. There's quite a few, and I'm picking them off all these trees in town. I don't know which ones they are half the time. So when I mix those all together, you know, sometimes I can get 44 ounces out of a five-gallon bucket, sometimes 28. If I get 32, I'm happy. So, yeah. you know, four batches to make one gallon. I usually make about two or three gallons per fall, and it's a good Christmas present for all my relatives. Mm-hmm. I give them little bottles. Can, it's just great fun. How cool is that? So how do you go about picking the olives? Because it's, I mean, each olive is the size of a, no bigger than a quarter. And do you have to harvest them off the tree? Yes. So this is, yes, you don't want to pick them off the ground. So if right. they've already fallen, leave those alone. This is my least favorite part of the operation. So, yeah. you know, you can... If, if you, so in my backyard, for example, I can't put down like sheets or nets and just knock them out with a rake. That's easy. Uh, however, you know, to get the volume like I'm talking about, I don't always have hundreds of pounds on my three trees. Uh, so I have to go out and get them off the streets, like I've mentioned. And, you know, down near Acatillo is actually a great place. I'm sure, I don't know North Phoenix as well. I'm sure there's. Oh, all over of, the place. Yeah, all over the place. So I'm usually picking these on the side of the road in a ladder. So it's not, it's slow. I do. You know, if you just knock them out of the tree, you have to do a lot of cleanup. So it's like, if, you know, phase one is knock them out into these nets. And then you got to pick out all the, the leaves and leaves sticks and that you. Yeah. So when I do them out of a tree directly, I'll just basically get on a ladder with a bucket and some gloves on and just kind of scrape them off by hand. Because sometimes I'm like literally on a sidewalk five feet away from a street and, you know, I can't put sheets down. I don't have the room. Right. So I'll just, uh, you know, if I, but if you find a really, you know, when an olive tree has a heavy set. You can you can fill up a five gallon bucket pretty quickly if you're lucky. They're not always easy to find, but you can get lucky, and I do once in a while. Yeah. 
Well, that's part of the wild crafting of it, you know, going out and finding these. And then, then once you identify that olive tree, you want to go back to it. Right. Yeah. I do know, I do have some, you know, regulars that I've hit for several years in a row. And like I've said, they like, you know, this in the, with all your fruit trees that you get heavier set certain years than others. So some years they're great and other years there's yeah. less. Do you ever, um, do you ever share oil with the people you're harvesting from? I do. Yeah, for sure. In my neighborhood, my neighbors have quite a few olive trees. So I'll, uh, I'll give them uh, like a fresh loaf of bread and some of my oil when I'm done pressing it, if they let me pick their olives. Nice. So I, What's the reaction? Oh, I mean, it, it, they're shocked because some of my neighbors, again, if this, like I said, this neighborhood was built in the seventies and some of them are original owners of these homes uh-huh. that had these trees forever and never did anything with them. So they were shocked that you could do this when I first started doing it. And I think, you know, very excited now that when I bring them back to little, the result of my labors. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Wow. Well, I, as I shared with you before we started in over 400 episodes, we've never talked with anybody about olive oil. So good job. Thanks. Yeah, it was definitely, as I mentioned, it was hard to track down anyone even trying this. So, you know, the power of the internet, you know, I found these, this person in Australia and another one in New Zealand that had, they were further on, ahead on the, on the curve than I was and yeah. some tips and ideas. And, and here we are. I actually have an apple crusher and apple press. Have you looked at those as possibilities? I have. I haven't. You know, I've looked at old. Uh, so would this be like a cast iron one? Um, yeah. Heavy yeah, so duty. I, I have a. An on, yeah, I've, I have wondered if those would work. I actually have a, an active Craigslist search in Phoenix for whenever a, <laughs> a cider press goes up for sale. I take a quick look at it. I don't. It, it probably could. You know, it depends how mashed up it gets because you really want them into a, you know, if they're just crushed, that's not quite as good as if they're really just, uh, yeah. when I'm putting them through the garbage disposal, they come out in liquid form almost. I mean, everything, including the pit is really uh, pureed, if you will. So uh, they might work. They might not. Yeah. I've actually thought the, the cider press might be a good option for step three when you're pressing it. Right. Yeah, so exactly. uh, I am going to, I will try that someday if I get my hands on it. I tried a smaller um, you know, like a wood sided one where you would put it, it's used for winemaking as well. Yep. And, and that kind of works. It's just the, the, my, my other press, I'm able to put more force down on it. I think right. like a 12 town shop for shop press. So I really get, when I'm done, I have like essentially mulch left over from the, the mash and I throw that into my garden. Uh-huh. Cool. We should, can we get some pictures of what your equipment looks like? The, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I and I did share some videos. I can send them to you again. I have a perfect. They're yeah. very um crude. They're not, you know, not very well commented or anything. And they're from three or four years ago, me and my kids doing this where uh-huh. I I showed steps, you know, one, two, and three of all this happening, and they're on YouTube. Yeah. So I'd be happy to share those links with you again and you can see the perfect you know, the uh, all three stages there. Yeah. I've got them. We'll put them on the show notes page. So I'm gonna shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. Great. Well, I've got you know so many examples in those years before I figured this out of failing. I have a great one though, which is you know after we had this aha moment and I figured out to use the garbage disposal and get the and, and actually get a good yield of oil. I had a I had a weekend where I you know I made them like I mentioned I can get I think I had like a 44 or 48 ounce yield out of one of those buckets and I said finally I've cracked it. I know what I'm doing and I picked a bunch more olives that day and I I think I either that next Monday or Tuesday before work I had this idea of I'll just get up before work five in the morning and do another batch. So I did that, got up, did all my steps. Step two didn't seem like it was a, usually you can see the oil coagulating Mm -hmm. when it's happening. It didn't look right. And time was on, you know, clock was running late. I had to get to work. So I went and pressed it and I got nothing. So I went from, you know, a whole bucket that gave me 44 ounces of oil to another bucket 
same trees. They gave me absolutely zero. And I was just dumbfounded. What the heck happened? Yeah. You know, everything the same. And how did I get nothing? Well, back to the internet and back to researching and, you know, and kind of what I do at, at Intel, I'm a database administrator. I'm constantly troubleshooting problems. So it's like, all right, let's break this down. What are the, you know, what could have went wrong? The problem with, you know, if you're working on a computer and you run a test and it fails, you can just submit it again five minutes later, you know, getting to the point of pressing oil, which takes five or six hours of lead time. <laughs> right. It wasn't such a great, great, uh, you know, not too easy to reproduce. But here's where I, I, I ran into the concept of temperature. And you will always see on olive oil bottles, first cold pressed, right? I'm sure you've seen cold pressed, first cold pressed, something like that on a bottle of oil you bought at a store. Yes. And there's a little bit of a, that might be misleading. And, and even today, like, so in the old days, you always pressed it. The, the modern mills and what they have in Queen Creek, they use a centrifuge and they spin it to uh, separate the water and oil and the, the mash. So a lot of, they still might label these as first cold pressed, but they're not even pressed anymore. Most of them are spun, but I was pressing. And when you, when I researched on it, on the internet, what, you know, cold pressing, you're allowed to call it cold pressed up to like 83 degrees. So I guess it's very standard for everyone to heat their mash up to that point. So you still, even though you're saying it's cold pressed, you do warm it up if in fact it's not warm enough. Well, what was the difference between when I did this on Sunday and, you know, Tuesday at five in the morning? I think it was 90 degrees on Sunday uh-huh. and it was 55 degrees on Tuesday at five in the morning when I tried. So that was it. I didn't, you know, the, the mash wasn't warm at all and I didn't get any oil out of it. And uh, so the, from, from that point on, I started when I cleaned them in that I mentioned I have a two-sided sink. So when I clean them, I kind of soak them in some warm water if it's not warm outside already because I'm doing this in my backyard. So I'm totally, you know, whatever the temperature is outside, that's what the temperature of the olives are going to be right. unless I, you know, warm need to warm them up a little. So that was it. And the next time I made sure if I wasn't in the afternoon, if I was doing this at a cooler time of day that I warmed them up first and that did solve the problem. Now, were you able to go back and warm that other batch up? No, no. It was a total waste, a total failure. Aww. Yeah, at that point, when, when you get through pressing and nothing's coming out, it's done. So that was a – but I learned, so. Right. Good example for your question there. <laughs> well, and this is, you know, this is exactly yeah. how we figure yeah. this stuff out. You just go do it and see what happens. Keep doing it. Yep. Keep at it. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? Yeah, my biggest success would have to be my family. I have four kids and a wonderful wife. So we have a family of six here and it's a, uh, it's wild to uh, you know, keep up with everything that we have going on between the ages of eight and 13. Mm-hmm. So school and sports and everything else that goes with that. Plus we both work full time. So um, the fact that everyone's happy and healthy, that's my, easily my biggest success. Nice. And you get to feed them well. Yeah. And yeah, they're all into this stuff too. So they, they are some of my big helpers. If you watch those videos, they're a little smaller because they're from three, four years ago, but they, they help me and you know, my kids know how to roll out homemade pasta. It's pretty amazing. They, oh, they learn cool. at a young age that I can give them a lump of dough and they can turn it into noodles for you. That is amazing. Yep. That's amazing. I, uh, when I was in high school, I had a peach tree that I had planted when I was a freshman. And by the time I was a senior, it was making peaches. And I said to my buddy, I wish I knew how to can peaches. And he says, my mom will teach you. So I learned how to can peaches from Tim's mom, which I, you know, I still know how to do that to this day. So having those skills taught to you when you're this age is, is beautiful. Yeah. And having it be normal, it's not even like a special thing if you do it enough. So it's almost like they expect, you know, to do things that way, which is great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what drives you? You know, I'm gonna have to say the family again, when you, when you're, uh, when you go from a point where you're just taking care of yourself to taking care of you and your wife and now you got four other kids to, you know, I'm, you know, I'm responsible for taking care of all of them. So they definitely drive me to 
in everything we do, right? To provide for them and save for their future and, and just um, raise them right. And yeah, they, they're my drive. That's for sure. Yeah. Beautiful. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? This is a tough one. I, I, I don't read as many books as I'd like to. This one will have nothing to do with, with gardening. But I'll throw it out there anyway. I'm a sports fan. Uh-huh. And the, it's the most recent one I read. It's called The Sports Gene, and it's written by a guy named David Epstein. Uh, this this really isn't, uh, again, it's no, no relationship here, but I just finished reading it, and I loved it. As a guy that has been a lifelong um, follower and participant in sports, it was just a fascinating read on, you know, diving into, if you're interested in sports, like why are, you know, why do certain countries produce great sprinters but not great long-distance runners, and why do other countries do the exact opposite? And, you know, what, you know, kind of breaking down the human physiology into a certain, you know, some of us are born with a certain type of fast twitch muscles and slow twitch muscles. Just a fascinating read. Wow. And I just finished it. So it's fresh in my mind when you asked me this. Uh, cool. I am six foot eight. I don't know if you remember that. So I was a basketball player and it has a lot of uh, details on, you know, basketball players and sprinters and just, mm-hmm. to, I couldn't put it down. So that's the most recent book I read. And Excellent. So sports fan at all dive in. <laughs> are, are your kids tall too? Yeah. My oldest daughter is in eighth grade and she's, pushing six foot she's 5'11 so she's gotten her height from me nice and, uh, the other ones are tracking that direction as well nice so what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners i would just say follow your passions and you know with the internet the world has become such a smaller place you know that if i if i look at what i was trying to tackle here and if you rewind the clock 20 years you know i probably would have been in the library and maybe i'd have found something maybe i wouldn't have but to be able to just search the internet and find you know find someone's website in Australia and click on an email and send them an email and have this person talking to me and it really solved the problem. It's just amazing. So if you have a passion, it seems, you know, with the internet and the availability of information at your fingertips, you can, you, sh- you should be able to pursue almost anything. Yeah. So go for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely different. I, you know, I'm 57 years old and so I lived, you know, I've lived a big chunk of my life without the internet and, you know, back, 35, 40 years ago, when I was raising fish in my backyard, we went to the library and we did, you know, research in books on how to do this. And so it is right. It is a different game these days. And the library is still a great place. I love popping in to research something, but this, oh, yeah. you know, the speed and the amount of time you might have to spend versus what you can do on the internet is a big difference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ron. This has been an inspirational chat. Well, I'm happy to, I'm, I'm very happy to be on it. You were one of my inspirations, Greg, years ago, as I mentioned, I didn't know you could grow apple trees in Phoenix until I saw your Anna Apple and Golden Dorsets there in your backyard. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate uh, you having me on and it's been good talking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Sure. If you, uh, I mean, my email address is r underscore Mantini, which is M-A-N-T-I-N-I at yahoo.com. You can find me on Twitter, Ron underscore Mantini is my handle. You know, if there's anyone in the Phoenix area that there's, like I said, there's olive trees everywhere. And my least favorite part is, is picking them. So if, if there's any listener to this podcast that would be interested in seeing how this works and they wanted to bring me a, a bucket of olives, I could show you how it works and we could split the proceeds. So if you're interested in that, reach out and uh, maybe we can uh, make that happen. Excellent. Excellent. I uh, That would be fun to do. That is for sure. sure. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Ron's Fresh Pressed Oil. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. 
on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.